Welcome to Real History, shows what you know about history. On this podcast, we talk about historical movies and television, anything that claims to be based on a true story, and we check how bad did they mess it up? What was life actually like during that time period? Well, that's why we're here, to separate the real history from the real history. My name is Jacob Burrows, and I don't know anything about history. And my name is Michael Tynan, and I fear that my powers of discussion have seriously diminished since uh, this longest of lockdowns started. My name's Mark, and I've been awake since Thursday. That's actually true, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this week, we're talking about Inglorious Bastards, and I think people at home might be like, what? That's not a historical film. Like, it's even less of a historical film than A Knight's Tale, I would argue. Um... <laughs> But it is a good jumping off point to discuss this part of history, much like A Knight's Tale. So yeah, we picked this one. What of it? Want to fight about it? Um, if you haven't seen Inglourious Bastards, I'm going to give you a one sentence summary that doesn't go into any of the history, and then we'll talk about the history. Um, so my summary is this. In an occupied land, multiple plots to take out the occupying leaders intersect chaotically in a movie theater that goes up in flames. Yeah, not bad. Bit of a spoiler there. Perfect, Jacob. I didn't know how to describe it. It's honestly like that's kind of what it is. It's about multiple intersecting plots that sort of explode together in trying to take out Hitler. Spoiler alert: It's Nazi-occupied France. Um, So that's kind of the basics of the story. We'll talk a lot more about it. It's a Quentin Tarantino film. There's lots to say about that and how he does it. Um, But first of all, Michael, do you have a couple of details on on the film itself? Yeah, so it seems like only yesterday, but it actually came out in 2009. It's a hefty film. It's over two and a half hours, but I think we'd all agree that, you know, it doesn't seem like it's two and a half hours. Uh, you know, the the quality of the scenes that are so memorable, they, uh, you know, make it hop along at a very kind of happy pace. Um, as Jacob said, we are in Once Upon a Time in Nazi-occupied France. Um, and the film itself, uh, it, it has a certified fresh of 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's obviously got the critics consensus there. Um, and it grossed over 321 million worldwide. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, it ensured that, uh, Quentin Tarantino can continue to make any movie he wants going forward. Indeed. Um, and, and some of the starring roles include Brad Pitt, uh, Michael Fassbender, Eli Roth, uh, Christoph Waltz, who won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, um, the first Quentin Tarantino film to ever win such an award, and I think it's well-deserved. He portrays the uh, SS uh, captain, or I don't know what rank, I don't remember the rank, ha- but he's Colonel the- Hans Lander, yeah. Ah, yes. And he's the, quote, Jew hunter, uh, a very menacing sort of character and a great portrayal. Um, I I think, yeah, as we were saying, there's a lot of memorable scenes. Uh, I honestly, like, rewatching this after so long, I had a really hard time taking it seriously for the first bit because it's so Quentin Tarantino, you know? And then once the actual plots and everything got into motion, it was kind of like an accelerating train, the story, and you kind of get swept up in it eventually. But it's just so separated from reality like the dialogue and everything and in, in you know in my opinion that it was kind of hard to take seriously because it's so quentin tarantino that's interesting you say that I, I i felt sort of the same way um i hadn't seen it in a while and it, it was the movie that i, w- I would have said 
for a while or for a number of years like if somebody said what's your favourite Quentin Tarantino movie I would have said Inglorious Bastards and having watched it again I don't think I'd say that anymore um, mm-hmm. that that whole it's it's just very Tarantino in the opening scene that's that's very true I just you know do you mind if I smoke my pipe yeah do you mind if I smoke my pipe as well and he types out this like novelty size ridiculous, ridiculous pipe, pipe you know yeah. all of that sort of heightened uh, that heightened dialogue and heightened reality kind of thing um, really struck me this time in a way I don't think it had before so yeah it is just very Tarantino-esque there's a lot of tension in nearly every scene you know um like even the farmhouse the opening scene like that like literally you're on the edge of your seat for that and i think the same is true of later scenes in the film too um especially when they are in a cafe or kind of a bar and they're being interviewed by a a nazi officer you know and uh, they are completely you know, you, you they are. He's he's trying to work out whether this uh, whether M- Michael Fassbender is a real German or not, and like trying to pick up on his mannerisms and everything. And it's I don't know I, those two scenes anyway. They're 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 all set in the one room and they're about twenty minutes each. And I think yeah. they're they're masterful. You know, yeah, the building of tension works really well, and that's really the basis of the film because. I think that's why, even though it's not historically accurate, I think it captures a mood of being in an occupied land and just having to toe the line with your occupiers while secretly plotting against them. There's a lot of criticism that can be said about this film beyond what we've already said. Like, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's. I'm sure we'll get more into it, but it pretty much is just a, a, uh, an orgy of violence, much like many Quentin Tarantino films, which I think is fine in essence, but it's just like... It is, I, I just hope that no one walks away from this thinking that this is history, you know? <laughs> as long as you realize it's a fantasy, I think it's a pretty good film. It's a fantasy and not history is a good way to describe it because for, for me, like, it, it sort of struck me watching, because I, I probably haven't watched it in seven or eight years, but watching it, I, I, I kind of was like, well, it, it's not realistic and it's not meant to be realistic. You know what I mean? It's not, this is not supposed to be, like like you say, it is a fantasy. And that, that sort of allows for it to have exaggerated things in it. Even so far as, like, Fassbender's English accent in the scene where yeah. he meets with Mike Myers' character. They're just ludicrously yeah. over-the-top, posh Englishmen. You know, this sort of fantasy yeah. idea of what the British upper class are like, you know. And Churchill's just sitting in the corner, you know. It's, just, it's, it's obviously not realistic, you know. It's not true at all. But I don't think... Like, the film is not claiming to be real. I weirdly, I kind of have more of a problem with it still, like, as far as setting itself out as a historical film compared to, say, A Knight's Tale, um, because of the extreme violence where, like, basically Brad Pitt leads a a, a guerrilla force of Jewish uh, soldiers who have sort of escaped from their homelands and are returning to, uh, well, the Third Reich or Nazi-occupied France, and they're sort of scalping... Nazis and they're carving swastikas into their foreheads and they're beating them up with baseball bats. All very fun on the surface, but I I, I think there's an inherent problem with just taking Jewish people and uh, t- 
turning their violence up to 11. It is gratifying in a sort of grindhouse Quentin Tarantino kind of way to see like this, yeah, fuck the Nazis, let's, you know, carve swastikas into their heads. But we do take Jewish people and and like have them perform the sickening violence in this and kind of turn them into as extreme of uh, a version uh, as the Nazis and their violence. So, and, and some of these people are still alive so therefore slightly more problematic than uh, a knight's tale in that sense um well yeah. as um lieutenant aldo himself said he said a bushwhacking guerrilla army doing one thing and one thing only killing nazis and i think that's like <laughs> one of his nazis. first sentences yeah, with his yeah. tennessee drawl you know <laughs> which i'm not going to attempt here yeah, which was similarly ludicrously over the top, you know. Yeah, the accents are just on point. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll we'll talk more about the film and the contents of the film. I mean, there's a I, I there's a big spoiler if you haven't seen it that I guess we'll get into. But at the end, it's very clear that uh, I I appreciate it more because it deviates so much from history at the end because that kind of signals to the audience don't take any of this shit seriously because uh, the way it ends is just very clearly not how the war ended. Uh, but I, we can leave the details for now. Let's talk about the start of the war and uh, sort of how we ended up in this situation where France is occupied by the Nazis. I'm sure everyone listening has a general sort of idea, but just to sort of set up the playing fields of the French resistance, which is a big part of what we want to talk about today. Uh, Mark, do you want to kick us off on sort of how France fell? Sure. Um, so I think it's sort of an important thing to say is that there there exists in um, the Anglosphere this sort of understanding that the French just surrendered as soon as the Germans turned up. And this idea of the... like I, I don't know what it's from, but there's certainly some American who used, used the phrase uh, cheese-eating surrender monkeys. This idea that the, the French just don't fight and they're all cowards. And it's The uh, Simpsons. I, it was, was it The Simpsons? Okay. Yeah, I think so... so. I just want to dispel that. That's just that that could could not be further from the truth. Like that is just completely and utterly untrue. And if anyone thinks that that is true, you just have a, a total failing to understand history generally. Um, quite aside from the fact that the French won World War One, um, they've all, they'd also spent the last like thousand years beating the living shit out of everyone in Europe, uh, on and off. So I mean, they're not. It's just not true. They lost one war one time. Okay, let's let's just. Uh, so let me just put that into context. And the reason they lost it, there there are many and varied reasons. Um, having said that about the French, they did lose the battle for France within six weeks, which is just extraordinarily fast. Um, one of the one of the uh, outcomes of that was the shock globally that was felt because this is just not what people thought was going to happen um having been through this horrendous war of attrition in world war one they just thought it was going to be something similar and that idea is sort of what formed the french strategy and uh in the reverse it also formed the german strategy they were determined that it wouldn't happen like that again um and so let me let me just get into why france developed the strategy it did and what their strategy was and why it failed the thing that needs to be understood really about France leading up to World War One or World War Two rather, is that it, it is enormously divided. This is a very, very politically divided um, country. In 1936, there's an election, um, and just broadly speaking, the the sort of the opponents of the election are, are this group called the People's Front, and then there is a sort of a, a far far left fringe and far right fringe. Um, what happens is in 1936, a guy called Leo uh, Leon Bloom becomes the prime minister, 
um, and he's the prime minister res- pr- uh, presiding over a, a broad coalition of loosely aligned uh, politicians. Um, but it's it's in a, a harrowing time. World War One has led to France being economically crippled. Um, the stock exchange crash in uh, Wall Street ha- has happened uh, five or six years previous. Mm-hmm. The country is in a really, really bad state um, economically. There's riots. Um, there is some good things from that government. He does introduce the 40-hour work week that we're all familiar with, so thanks, Leon, for that one. There's um, big divisions over the Spanish Civil War as well around Yeah, that absolutely. Time. Absolutely. There's large swathes of the French population are hard-right fascists. Large swathes of the French population are hard left communists. Then you've got a sort yeah. of a middle ground, which itself is divided. So, as you might imagine, it's very difficult for that government to actually get anything done. There's riots. Um, there's a very far right group that are called. Now, you'll have to forgive my pronunciation. Maybe maybe Michael can help me out here. But there's a far right group called uh, La Croix de Feu, the the uh, the Cross of Fire, which are like La Croix de Feu. La Croix de Feu. Okay, they're uh, they're like a. Um, <laughs> Just to be like an a hard right uh, <laughs> Nazi esque group um, who are, you know, carrying out demonstrations and all of this kind of stuff throughout the thirties. Um, Bloom bans them, just makes them illegal, and that leads mm-hmm. to to further to further riots. There's also similar groups on the on the far left who are communist, and there is a fear among the this, the right and increasingly the centre right that Bloom is going to instigate some kind of a USSR backed left-wing overthrow of French society. So that's the kind of thing that's going on here. What that means for the military is, is pretty important. So after World War I, you, you, you've got an entire generation of French military talent and lack thereof um, in the senior command hmm. resigning, basically retiring, leaving office, all of that kind of stuff. Obviously, the funding for the military is degrading because the economy can't sustain the levels of spending it had been, uh, had been pumping into the army. The army is still enormous, though, just just so we're all aware. Um, But what ends up happening is because the political situation is so uh, stressed and so uh, on a a knife point, the appointments to the command positions in the army are political appointments. And that's because each faction wants to ensure that the other faction doesn't use the army against them. So what that means is there's increased civilian control in the military. And that's very dangerous because these, what ends up happening is you've bunches of people who are in, Maybe not the highest command, but in the executive ranks who have no military experience and don't really know what they're doing. So they're making assumptions about what's going to happen for the next war. Conversely, in Germany, that's absolutely not what's happening. They have a completely different concept. Um, after World War One ends, the Treaty of Versailles is forced on Germany, and part of the one of the, one of the um, one of the stipulations in the treaties is that the German military has to be reduced in size. So they're not allowed to have more than 100,000 men. Now, obviously, Hitler's government reneges on that, and we can get into Hitler's government in maybe a different episode. Um, but what it meant was that the, the German um, military command have a structure that's completely different to what the other European uh, militaries are like. What they basically do is an officer is trained to be the, the rank above what he actually is. So if you're a major, you're trying to be a colonel. If you're a colonel, you're trying to be a general. And that goes all the way down to the privates. Privates are trying to be corporals. Corporals are trying to be sergeants. Sergeants are trying to be captains and so on. Why did they do that? Because when the restriction get, gets lifted, they can scale up much faster than anyone else. Right. right? Very clever. It's, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's very, very clever. The other thing that they did was they developed an entirely new method of warfare so 
what needs to be understood when the Germans surrendered World War One, they were in France, right? They were winning as far as as far as a soldier on the front line understood, they were winning. They'd mauled most of Belgium. They had ruined part of France, and they were in French territory. Now they were dug into trenches, and there wasn't really much going on. But they wanted to stop that from happening again. They wanted to stop getting to a point where you're in the enemy territory, but you can't advance any further, and you're just bogged down. You're being flanked. The Russians are fighting you. The French are fighting you. Everyone's fighting you. So the entire and this is German- where the famous uh, Ramon song becomes relevant, yes. uh, isn't it? <laughs> This is where the bop starts. The blit- blitzering bop? <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed, right? yeah. Yes, it is, in fact. Yeah, I know so history. Is, yeah, you know what you're talking about. This is pop <laughs> history, guys. But yeah, so the, the Germans basically develop a method of warfare that's referred to as Blitzkrieg, lightning war. And the idea is that you don't need numbers if you have decisiveness and speed, right? So what they do is they uh, identify a weak point and they throw the quality of their army at the weak point quickly. Then they identify a second weak point and hit that. Then the third, and then the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth. And the idea is not that you you break the enemy by destruction. It's that you break the enemy by disruption. So if you can get in behind their line and disrupt their line, it's over. Um, this is not the modern era. You can't just communicate via Bluetooth and the internet to your armies, right? It just doesn't exist. The French um, had failed to equip their army with radios, uh, while the Germans right. were big into radios. And they were big into the use of uh, a series of tanks, which are called panzers, which people are probably um, fairly aware of. So anyway, back to France. Um, the French wanted to prevent what happened in World War One as well. And their idea was that they would prevent the Germans from entering into French territory. And in order to do that, they heavily fortified the border with Germany with what with a, a thing that's known as the Maginot Line. The Maginot Line is a series of really, really heavy defensive fortifications that the French figured the Germans won't be able to break through this. It's just, it's just a nightmare. It's a series of forts, barbed wires, minefields, underground heavy trains, underground trains. Just all sorts of stuff, and you're you're not going to get through it. And they were right. The, Ger- the Germans couldn't get through that. Um, so the the conventional wisdom is that they just sort of the Germans just went okay fine and they went around it but that's not actually true the the French strategy was actually to push the German army into Netherlands and Belgium that was the idea so they wanted the fighting to be not in France <laughs> because France had been destroyed in, in World War One. you know so the idea was well you know let's have the Dutch and Belgians get destroyed and we'll fight on their territory rather than fighting on our own Um. But the Germans weren't stupid and they, they sort of knew that this is what the, the French wanted them to do. Um, in the in the French uh, border, on the French border with France is an area referred to as the Ardennes. And this is a heavily forested area. And that was the point in the Maginot Line where the defences were the weakest. And the reason they were weak there is because the French felt that you couldn't really strike through the Ardennes with mechanised units, tanks and things like that, heavy heavy infantry. You couldn't really get through there because it was just so heavily forested. And the reason they felt that is because in 1938, in a war game, they tried to provide their own tanks through it and they had a bit of a nightmare and they weren't quite able to do it and it was like really, really slow. So they felt, that's fine. We don't need to fortify that as heavy as the other parts of the, of the uh, Maginot Line and we'll send the bulk of our army up to the Belgian border. So what they think is going to happen is the Germans are going to go on a heavy invasion into the north so into the Netherlands and into Belgium. Yeah. The Belgian army will stand up their defence, then the French and the British expeditionary force will rush into Belgium to help the Belgians. And that sort of is what happens. 
but it's not fully what happens. Um, the Germans uh, send an enormous amount of infantry into the north, as was expected, but they take several panzer divisions and heavy infantry, and they basically drive through the Ardennes. So the way to think about it is is it's a it's a, like a classic pincer. So you're sending in an enormous amount of force into the into the north, swinging around over the over the top of France. The French are sending their troops up to meet you, and there's really really heavy fighting. The Belgians and the and the Dutch are fighting the Germans, and they're it's it's brutal and it's vicious. And the French are doing reasonably well resisting the German advance, but at the same time, what happens is the German advance through the Ardennes catches everyone by surprise, and nobody's expecting this. So now the panic happens from the French command. Are they going to go for Paris, or are they going to try and cut off the north, or are they going to try and flank the Maginot Line? So nobody really knows what they're going to do. The French military command is slow. Like I was saying, they don't have uh, radios. They're centrally controlled by the generals, so it takes maybe 48 hours for an order to actually get to the front, whereas in the German command structure, the the uh, executive officers, so colonels and majors and things like that, are given license to make tactical decisions. And this is actually the thing that the big difference between the German and the French army. In the French army, it's all about prestige and the title and the general controls everything. In the German army, that's just not the way it is. The colonel can make tactical decisions. The man on the front can make tactical decisions as long as it f- it feeds the overall strategy. Um, yeah. So what happens well. is, there- go on, Nick. Don't forget as well that the German soldiers were famously off their heads on amphetamine the whole time. So they were like, they really they didn't sleep. They just went through the forest. <laughs> People thought they were, you know, who are these men? They, they don't seem to get tired, you know, off their heads. Actually true. <laughs> yeah, no, it is actually true. There is also cultural differences, like, in, 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 how, in how this is, like, the context is important. I mean, the Germans are out for vengeance. I mean, they, like, like what I was saying earlier, like they, they felt that they'd been betrayed by their own government when the government surrendered in World War One, because these guys were like, we're winning, we're in France, what, what are we surrendering for? So they're sort of, they're trying to recapture their pride, and that plays into the Blitzkrieg style of warfare. So think of it like tanks at the point of a, of a spear, with the with the soldiers making up then the shaft of the of the spear. So they just drive in really, really heavy, really, really fast, quicker than anyone else can get there. Sometimes even ignoring the commands from the from the central command back in Berlin, I just go no 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 no. They're telling us to go over here, but if we hit here, it'll take this town out. So they're do- this is what the Germans are doing, moving really really quickly. Whereas the French are just reacting the whole time, and every time they react, the Germans have done something different. So they've turned course, they've wheeled around, they've outflanked them. And essentially, what happens in in Belgium and the Netherlands is the Germans just do this on small scale, dozens and dozens and dozens of times, and they just outflank every army, every time, and they just start grinding them down. The Belgians just surrender. They realise, we're cut off from the British and the French, we're going to surrender. The Dutch, they just basically go, well, if the Belgians are gone, we're gone, so <laughs> see you later. So they, they cut out. The Brits are just shocked. They just had no idea of what was going to happen, so they just start retreating. Uh, the French are cut off. They're cut in half. Um, the Maginot Line is still staying where it is because it's afraid of an assault from the rest of the German army, so it doesn't really move to react. So, Essentially what happens is the French army gets cut in two and the German forces just continue to do this. So one of the one of the local leaders of the German army is a guy called Heinz Guderian. And Guderian was one of the was famous is famous um for being one of the guys who led the idea of the panzer attack, like this this idea that you would attack with mechanized infantry and then back it up with boots on the ground soldiers. Um 
And he instigated this idea that the Panzer units could call in airstrikes. Now, that was completely unheard of. Now, I know to modern people, you'd be like, well, that's how, that's how the US Marines operate, and that's how, but that had never been done before. So you're talking about tank commanders telling the Air Force where to bomb. So they will see an area and they think, okay, we're going to go through there, but it's a little heavily guarded, call in the Luftwaffe. So they'll come in and bomb this area, and then the tanks will just speed in before you've got time to react. And they're giving so each other commands via radio. So kind of just, it's their tactic, the German tactical, um, you know, superiority and the element of surprise basically overwhelmed the French, even if their army was bigger, even if they had yeah. bigger tank divisions, everything, they just, they just were shell-shocked. Yeah, and it, it's, it's a misunderstanding that, like, the German army is much, much bigger than the French army. It's not. Like, the, the numbers are comparable. You're, you're talking, like, including the Brits, you're talking the French army, about 2.7 million, um, the German army, about 2.4 million. The, the French tanks are actually really, really good. They're comparable to Panzers. They're pretty effective. The heavy French tanks are, from the front, you couldn't pierce their armour. They're pretty strong. The problem is the command. It's old French generals who've been appointed for political reasons who don't fucking know what they're doing. Uh, whereas the German army has devolved power to guys who know what they're doing. And in some instances, like Guderian I mentioned, he actually ignored commands so they were told by the German central government, stop uh, advancing, we'll just we'll hold this area here. And he was like, nah, we're not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to push out to the sea and we're going to completely cut them off because if we do this, we can catch the Brits and we'll, we'll outflank them completely. And he basically just said, oh, the radio didn't work, I didn't hear you. Literally, that's what he said. That email <laughs> must have Kent went to my spam folder. You know, it's my yeah. spam filter, I know what to tell you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Guderian and guys like him are just taking the initiative the whole time. And often times in battles the initiative is what wins a battle like as soon as you surrender yeah. the initiative it's over you know in 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 modern warfare just like in ancient warfare medieval warfare the, the the carnage and the real death is not actually caused by the contact it's caused by the other army breaking and routing and that's what's happening yeah. with the french soldiers it's not even that they're running away they just they don't know where they're supposed to be so you know it's not as if you can sort of see the battle this is happening all over the north of france it's an enormous area it's not as if they didn't have the manpower to do counterattacks. They did try. Individual commanders tried to do counterattacks, but it was just so uncoordinated. Added to that, the calamity of the British performance in, in World in World War Two, and again, I'm I'm very aware that I am an Irish guy having a go at the Brits here, like, but I mean it was calamitous. Like they just they just didn't know what was going on. They had no concept of the speed and the ferocity of the German attack that they just ran. And we talked about the Dunkirk evacuation. I mean it it, it it's it is the most horrendous retreat and defeat probably in British history, you know. So, in any case, the Germans start uh, moving south. They start getting to France, or start getting to Paris, rather. The French government decides, we need to run. We need to get out of Paris. The French army is just disorganised and it's defeated. So, what you're saying is that they were, in essence, cheese-eating surrender monkeys. No comment. (laughs) <laughs> some of them were as we will see some of them were no they're just it's just tactics they're just the tactics were wrong the German tactics were just superior that's all it was no I was I, I was making a, a, a joke um, but Michael so I, I mean this as you were saying this happened over a period of six weeks or so so very quickly we have an entire country shell-shocked and as well the ramifications abroad of this sudden assault 
and change in the map of Europe, which obviously, as we know it, is more or less fixed. We get upset when, like, a little <laughs> peninsula is annexed by Russia or whatever. But at this time, like, a, you know, just a, a, an enormous invasion of uh, an enormous power. Um, and the, so what this film portrays, obviously, is the mood that that has then caused in the country and sort of what we want to get into. Because it's after... So I guess... Can, can I pass it to you, Mick, for, for what happens sort of after well, this? Or where do we want to pick this yeah, up? Yeah, well, I suppose like you can't get around what happened after the fall of France. So basically, put a long story short, because there is a lot of history in this, and there's a lot more sources that people can explore. But um, the Germans decided they signed an armit- armistice with General Pétain. And essentially, what that armistice did was it create it divided france in two so the north basically all the atlantic coast of france from bordeaux all the way up to the up to belgium that was all occupied by, by germany and then they created this sort of statelet called vichy uh the vichy vichy france uh, officially the french state and it was about the south of france essentially about two-fifths of the the kind of territory um, what I always find horrible when you think about this is that Hitler made Pétain sign the armistice in the same carriage that the Germans surrendered in, in 1918 in the First World War. So he made, he specifically got them to bring this railway carriage to a place and he got Pétain to sign France's uh, surrender right there and then the exact same carriage. So I always think that gives you, a, if you needed a glimpse into his sadistic soul, you're getting another one right there if you didn't have enough examples, you know? Yeah. Lovely um, piece of uh, propaganda for, for, for Hitler. Like, look, I, I've humiliated the French on the side of our humiliation. That's, that's essentially what he's trying to do, right? A hundred percent. And like, for example, Hitler marched into Paris famously, you know, and... He, he can, they say he considered destroying it, but he had plans for Berlin uh, to become the world's most beautiful city. So he said, uh, Paris will only be a shadow, so why would we destroy it, you know? So <laughs> Paris, fortunately for world heritage, has survived, uh, you know, heavy bombardment or anything like that. But essentially, what was created was a sort of a, a rump French state, if that makes sense. And it was authoritarian. The Republic was gone. It was no longer Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité. It was, you know, it was completely changed. Now it was family, fatherland and work. You know, uh, abortion was a capital offence. It was a conservative, reactionary state, completely, uh, a, a complete vassal of Nazi Germany, essentially. Hard right fascist arseholes. Basically. Not a nice place to live, I would say, uh, personally, you know. Um, and what you have to think about is that, like, there was, this, this, there was so much chaos, chaos around this time. This around June 1940. So, like, they reckon about, there was about 6 million French refugees who fled, you know, from their homes in the north of France. For, to give you an example, the population of Lille, a, a, a city in normal, northern France, went from 200,000 to 20,000 people because just everybody got out. They were fe- fe- fearing the Ger- Germans arriving. Same with France, uh, with Paris. There was about two, two, 2.8 million people in Paris at that time. 
by the time the Germans walked down the Champs-Élysées, there was 700,000 left, you know. So basically massive movements of people down south into what they considered France still, or Vichy France, you know. Um, oh, sorry, yeah, can I yeah. ask, just so I'm clear, so there's the the sort of occupied zone is the north of France, and then yeah. the 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 south then is that that's still controlled by the french is it yes but it's sorry? a french it's a puppet government of the germans so okay. it's pretty much it's it's all taken over then right so it is but or, like hitler was like okay i'm only i only i i can't trust the french to look after the coast so i'm making sure my army is on the coast okay. but they can look after the south they might come in handy right. and yeah. the way that part, part uh, of it too would you Part of it too is sorry, Mick. Just to, just to sort of cut in is like the defeat of France, the fall of France happening in six in six weeks. Like that surprised the Germans too. Like they they they, they, right. did, they didn't think honestly. Like Hitler had had didn't think that this was going to happen. He didn't think they'd knock the French out that quick. Nobody thought the French would get knocked out that quick. That's why there was the reaction was slow and laboured and disorganized for you from the british standpoint their entire war effort depended on the french being involved so mm. this happening you know you know you've got to you've got to make strategic moves now for your long term at a pace you weren't anticipating so patan was handy to have right so that's vichy france is the south what we now consider the south of france which with the capital being Vichy, then I suppose Vichy, just a spa town in the middle of France, where they basically all <laughs> decided to ca- encamp. Uh, nice place to yes. hang out, like <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he could, uh, Patan could go for his what his lovely walks every day. But essentially, this is consi- like Patan dis- said, said that this was necessary. Uh, it was a necess- necessary condition to retain the eternal France, as he put it. So basically, mm. this was the successor state to the French Republic in the eyes of lots of people, you know. Uh, there was no, at this time, there was no idea about General de Gaulle or anything like that. For example, um, this, Washington, both Washington and Moscow recognized this as the new French state, you know. Uh, people forget that. People think, oh, of course, the Allies would have been on the side of uh, the uh, side of the Free French in in Paris or what, or in um, in London. But at this time, Washington, America wasn't in the war, the, and the Nazi Soviet Pact was still in place. So the so the USSR was allied with Germany at this time. So you know, it's a big, big mess. But anyway, all you yeah. need to know and, is and, that. And I guess whether you're in the north or the south, uh, you're in a pretty shit spot if you're Jewish. Then because you're yeah, be- like I, I'll go into a little bit. Like Vichy wasn't a nice place to be, and there's it's not a surprise that there was a resistance. Basically, just to give you an idea of who Patan was, so you get an idea of what kind of a state he wanted to create. So he was the, a general, so he was a military man his whole life, you know. He would have been the hero of the Battle of Verdun in World War I, where the French, even though it was a Pyrrhic victory, they, they managed to hold, push back the Germans, you know. Uh, so he was a national hero. Um, he was kind of seen as a father figure uh, and a bastion of kind of conservative Catholic values, you know, and that he would essentially rule france with a firm grip if you know what i mean um so like in terms of himself he he was a kind of a very old man you have to take into account he was 84 when he became the head of this new french state you know so he was 
already going senile. Like there was one quote, one time he has been overheard as he was visiting a town in in southern France, and he all of a sudden didn't know where he was. He was like, "Who am I? Where am I? What am I doing?" You know. So he had he was like not in his uh, the prime of his life anymore. You know. So. It was a very reactionary state. As I said, like abortions, uh, abortion was banned. Uh, Divorce restrictions were put on divorce. It was basically a very regressive state. Um, It had a big, like this occupation of France, it had a major effect on French life. And this will just give you an idea of, I suppose, why the conditions for resistance were there, you know? And so like, just to give you an idea, of like 55% of France, France's national income was handed over to the Germans every year. And that represented 9% of the Germans' f- complete uh, wealth for or complete, you know, state revenue or whatever. GDP, so, yeah. yeah. So they were, they, were, they were ransacking the place, if you know what I mean. Um, like yeah. over 600,000 French were sent to into forced labor in Germany and German factories, you know, in, on German farms, because a lot of the Germans obviously were off, uh, uh, off uh, fighting in the war. So they were using this French manpower to fund the war, you know, like even household names like Renault and Citroën, the car companies, they were, f- uh, they, they were making, you know, military equipment for the German war effort. And people kind of forget about this. And I suppose one thing that you can't overlook at this is that there was over like nearly 1.8 million French prisoners of war held by the Germans at this time. So when you're thinking about resistance, a lot of people would have been afraid to resist because of the fears that the Germans are holding 1.8 million of our men in camps what like if they want to do reprisals or whatever here's this massive hostage we have over the to hold over the the french people you know uh so it was as you said jacob a really anti-semitic place like they pretty much brought in racial laws fairly quickly jews couldn't get jobs uh in public uh, in the public service um they eventually had to wear the star of david as well oh and about a year into the occupation, they started to round up the Jews. So this was something, and even to this day, people in France, they don't like to talk about this subject at all because there's this myth that, oh, there was a few bad eggs, uh, but all in all, most of the French population were, um, you know, all in the resistance fighting against the Germans for four years, you know, and it's just not true. Like, there would have been a lot of anti-Semitism in France already. So this opportunity to round up the Jews and get rid of them essentially would have been, uh, there would have been a lot of French people who agreed with this and who act actively uh, worked towards that goal. So all in all, 80,000 Jews were sent to concentration camps from France and about a quarter of them would have been French citizens. You know, so basically they their rights were taken away and then they were actively transported to to camps, you know. So as you said, Jacob, a really kind of not a nice place to be. Vichy France was not a was like it 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 it, it had all of the uh recipe of for disaster that would lead to someone wanting to 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 resist it if you know what i mean and all all with the all with the cultural backing i might add of the catholic church 
Just, yes. just in case 100%. anyone thinks I, I, I'm at any point going to let them off the hook for the Holocaust. Absolutely not. <laughs> they were enthusiastic the whole yeah. time. Enthusiastic, yeah. enthusiastic backers of of uh, Patan. Yeah, I'm back. I'm, I'm preaching, in fact, that Hitler's birthday should be celebrated by all Catholics. That that was a that was a Catholic ruling. Preach from the pulpits, just in case anyone's under any other impression as to whose side they're on. Mm. Interesting. And we still allow them to be around, do we? Like yeah. Catholics? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, funny oh, okay. that, isn't it? That's the one enemy we... Yeah, the we, Nazis we didn't are no longer... Okay. Right. <laughs> We're just making enemies with everyone this episode. Um, but yeah, yeah so I it's heavy all... stuff. Heavy stuff, I know. Like, <laughs> yeah, reading this stuff is very heavy going, you know. Uh, but I suppose I just wanted to give a glimpse into the fact that, you know, it, 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 this was a nasty place, but... Uh, uh, it couldn't have functioned the way it did without the active participation of many French people. Um, And I think that has to be acknowledged, you know? And I think, as you've said, we would all like to think that we would be in the resistance, but if you actually relate it to your real life, we're all just trying to, like, get through the day, right? (laughs) And trying to survive uh, and engaging in something that's very likely to get you killed if found out. If you're one of the people who's actually okay you know i it's hard to imagine risking your life to that degree even though we'd all like to say that yeah of course we'd be yeah i'd I'd have been shooting i've been shooting uh, nazi officers in the street and stuff yeah yeah but yeah yeah, like the the vast (laughs) like the the, basically the the diehard collaborists and the uh resistors at the outbreak or, or during the occupation they would have both been in the minority like the vast majority of people were doing just what you said we're just trying to survive and i think this is really well illustrated in the film in that opening scene where you have the farmer monsieur le petit is it or papite i'd have to check it out um and he's got his three daughters you know and they're in yeah. this pastoral idyllic scene and we all know that they're hiding the Dreyfus family underneath the floorboards. And at the end, he's obviously, this this French farmer, he's obviously gone to some trouble to protect this Jewish family, his neighbours, uh, over the past year, or it's implied anyway. Um, but when it came to it, when Christopher Valtz walked in and uh, he knew that uh, and threatened him, he he had to he had this dilemma do i give up the jewish family that are below my floorboards or do i risk my debt and the debt of my three children and i think that dilemma is something that all french people at this time had to ask themselves you know um and i think it's very as you said it's very hard to know what way any would any one of us would have went in that situation like it's it's impossible to know it's so so many different factors you know uh, but I think yeah. the film does a good job of actually highlighting this dilemma. Um, like, just to put it in this particular, like, I suppose, dilemma in context, even the future French president, Francois Mitterrand, in the 1980s, he would have been decorated by Vichy France, you know? But at the same time, he would have been in the resistance. So everybody was trying to play both sides to kind of protect themselves. Like famously, civil servants kept three copies of documents, you know. Mm. One was one that highlighted their uh, dedication to Vichy and Marshal Patan. One document showed the work they did on behalf of the German occupation. And the third one showed what they did 
to aid the resistance you know so they had they had three different documents this is actually recorded many of them that and as soon as d-day happened obviously the first two were just burned you know and it was all about how we all helped the resistance from day one of course we did you know um that's great i mean that's so i i i you know hate to make fun of it or make light of it but it's a funny idea for a sketch of having like someone in that situation burn the wrong file and they go shit (laughs) (laughs) or like putting them in the wrong filing cabinets sending the wrong report to their superior like oh no that was the vichy guy fuck that's not this guy this guy's definitely a nazi look at his documents (laughs) yeah Yeah, so like I, I think those are kind of examples of everyday situations where people had to make decisions. The vast majority of people, they kind of ignored most of the German rules and regulations as best they could. The French famously love ignoring rules and regulations to this day anyway. Um, and they, you know, they just a passive indifference, a grumbling resentment all the time that would sort of occasionally burst out into food riots and strikes and stuff like that. But by and large, the majority of people just got on with it, unfortunately, you know? So if we've talked about the majority, the silent majority that was sort of just trying to live their life, let's talk about what's portrayed. Well, I guess not so much in the film, but if we're talking about the French resistance, we don't actually see like the French resistance movement as such, because what we're mainly focusing on is this one cinema owner who comes up with a plan to take out the Nazis on her own, basically. Um, and Shosanna. The- Shosanna, I think. Yeah. Shoshana. 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 Shoshana yeah. Dreyfus, yeah. And we have a troop of Americans, uh, well, of, of Jewish Americans, uh, formerly from various parts taken over by Germany, led by Brad Pitt. And, of course. And, uh, <laughs> and Michael Fassbender, the Brit. Um, and they're all, and they're in, in occupied France. doing their mission of killing as many Nazis as possible and they have this Operation Kino where they know a lot of the high command is going to be in a cinema at one point to try to blow it up. So we don't actually see the French resistance as such, but can we... Like, how how did the French resistance work? What do we know about it now after the fact? Yeah, so I suppose there was more than one French resistance and that's kind of the first thing we should always say. There, Firstly, there was what I would probably call as the left-wing partisans or they were communists essentially, you know, and they, you know, had a certain vision of France. They obviously wanted, they were more closely allied to Moscow. They um, would have been, uh, there would have been a lot of uh, people from the Spanish, uh, Spanish civil war in, in this group too. They would have taken orders from like to the, the, the French communist party and they would have, Initially, because in the first year of the war, the Nazis and the Soviets were all good friends, they didn't really do much in the first year, apart from a few honorable exceptions, you know. Um, so they, so I would, say, I would say that's the first resistance. You have to think of the left-wing communists sort of with an eye on Moscow all the time. And then mm-hmm. the second f- resistance is under what you might call General de Gaulle, you know. So General de Gaulle's free French, and they were backed by the Allies. So already, before the Cold War even begins, you can see how, you know, there's two sides in France, both with the same goal of getting rid of the Germans, but w- both with a very different idea of what the future of France will look like after the war, you know. Um, so I suppose we should talk about General de Gaulle if you want, you know, and his, uh, yeah. you know, a larger than life as, character, as, as he as he himself would have uh, would have liked 
everyone of expected of expected of expected yeah, yeah expected yeah. Like, like this man had an ego he would have like he was convinced from a young age that he was going to be as he, like one of the great men of history as he put it yeah so, so just ca- just for any, anyone uh, in, in Europe who's not aware of this or outside of Europe is not aware of this when you fly into France by and large the airport you're flying into is Charles de Gaulle International Airport that's this guy <laughs> A hundred percent. And essentially, he was a general in the French army, but unlike Pétain, he didn't accept the fall of France. He believed that he would continue on the French, uh, the the Republic in exile, essentially, from London. So he disappeared Mm. to London and he set up a sort of government in exile, self-proclaimed, I would say. He had no legitimacy for this, but he, he he got Churchill to recognize him. And Churchill gave him a few quid so he could get more French guys over. And gradually he built up a little bit of a force. But he famously did a speech on the BBC to the French um, in, in, 19, in 1940. And he said, I invite all the French who want to remain free to listen to me and to follow me. And I suppose he, he, he started to see how can France continue to exist um, even though the Republic has fallen. And he considered himself a direct continuation of the Republic. He, uh, even though, and, uh, and P- so obviously in direct opposition to Pétain. Pétain's government in France condemned him to death at this time, you know? Um, mm. And de Gaulle's big idea, essentially, was to use... See, people think France has fallen, but France's colonial empire was massive. They still controlled most of... Africa, you know, and lots of uh, Southeast Asia as well. And so de Gaulle, basically what he, his tactic was at this time was to take control of all the French colonies. And he did this quite well. So he managed to kind of win over the the governors of Chad, Cameroon, the French Congo, uh, you know, later Algeria, all this to his cause. So he was developing a massive power base even though he was in exile in London, lots and lots of people listened to him. And he wanted to organize resistance from within France, essentially. And he wanted to make sure that whatever resistance took place in France was by his sanction and that he would get credit for it too, you know? Um, so you, yeah, he's, it, it's a it kind of a, 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 a funny thing to think, but it wasn't one united resistance that is often portrayed in the myth of the French resistance. It's very much different groups all vying for power, as we've seen in many of our subjects covered on this podcast, you know? So his, his attitude is very much like that. The French in France are defeated, but France is not defeated. And we, don't, yes. we have not surrendered. That's, yes. that's his attitude, essentially. Exactly. And he, like, he, at one stage, they had up to 20,000 troops in France that were under his command. Uh, you know, so he, he did know what he was doing. He was a massive pain in the ass, de Gaulle. So he was yeah. trying to get everybody to recognize him as essentially the, the prime minister of France or president of France. And Churchill did, although Churchill, like, famously said, I'm sick to death of this fucker. Uh, like, he's convinced the way he, the, the way he, um, held himself and entered a room and his arrogance like Churchill <laughs> said you'd swear this guy had 20 tank divisions behind him not just like an office in 
up the road uh, in uh, P- Peterloo, you know, with a, a load of French exiles. So he was a massive pain in the arse. Like FDR, the US president, famously said like, uh, oh, that guy, when asked who he was, he was like, some president of some French committee or other. You know, he was like, this, <laughs> this guy is a complete and utter asshole. But anyway, getting, getting I have back to... Say, to I, I, I have to say, I'm looking at a photo of him from 1942, and I've been trying to put my finger on who he reminds me of because he he just has a an incredibly French look about him, and I realize now that might be more to do with depictions after the fact taking yeah, no, inspiration from him yeah, yeah, rather than the other way around. But he does look a lot like, say, uh, the captain from Casablanca. He looks a lot like <laughs> the original pink panther detective yeah, from yeah, the, pink the pink panther, panther movies sure. he's got that mustache style. and yeah and so it's just very funny that he looks like a character out of you know allo allo uh the the sitcom about the french resistance but of course he is a real person and the actual inspiration for many 100%, of these archetypes yeah. <laughs> like he's a, a, his his image is implanted like and there's rarely you can't go to a town in france that doesn't have a plash uh uh, Charles de Gaulle, you know, these t- th- he's he's everywhere. He's sort of the French equivalent of Churchill, Churchill. right? Yeah. Like, he's like this massive national icon to the French, right? Oh, 100%. That yeah. yeah, yeah, 100%. He's, uh, like, even to this day, people in France, political parties describe themselves as Gaullist after him. Wow. By their, you know, so his, his legacy continues on to this day. And the French Republic, as, it, as we have it now, with a very powerful president, that's all his, his work. The reason that they're, they've centralized power. But that's another topic. Um, so that's probably, the that's one form of the resistance. Obviously, we had the communist mm. partisans. And then we have Miss, uh, Monsieur de Gaulle it, trying to organize resistance within France and uh, fight back against the Germans abroad, you know? Um, so what he did, what he really, he had a real problem. Because... He knew that once the Americans joined the war, he, he knew that the Germans would lose. He knew. He knew it was game over. The American military complex and industry was so powerful that it was only a matter of time before Germany would collapse. So he always had an eye on the future. And what he wanted to do, as I said earlier, was stamp his authority on the French resistance. So he sent a guy called Jean Moulin, which is probably the most... Jean, Jean Moulin is probably the most famous figure of the French resistance ever. Uh, like, there's not a school... There's, like, if you... There's very few towns or cities in France that don't have a school named after this guy, you know? And mm. what he's... His genius was, was he went back to France and he organized all these different groups, you know? So, like, just to give you an idea of the type of groups that existed, uh, you had everything from... Uh, Liberation Nord, Combat, France, Tiroir, uh, and they were all came under the, the kind of n- n- name of L'Armée des Ombres, so the Army of the Shadows, you know, which is kind of cool. Um, mm. But Jean Moulin, anyway, went back and his great contribution was he managed to unite more or less all of these disparate groups under, uh, under de Gaulle as a symbol of the liberation, you know. And he formed something called the Conseil National de la Résistance. And from there, this is when the, the Allies started to massively arm the France. So there was paratroo- uh, parachute drops of weapons. They reckoned the, the Allies um, armed over 140,000 French men and women 
in this period. And this is prior to and after D-Day. And right. so they, they had a massive, they, they, these arms drops meant that the French were ready to go when D-Day happened. And you get a lot of, as soon as D-Day happened as well, the numbers in the resistance swelled because all of a sudden everyone could see the writing on the wall and they, could, they, could, they knew that the Nazis were going to fall. So you had all these um, people that were called uh, resistors of the last hour. So they all just jumped on the bandwagon. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm in the resistance too. Me too, me too. So all of a sudden they had too many people and not enough weapons, you know? Uh, yeah. So yeah, I think it's very important to note there was two different resistance, but eventually the Gauls' ver- version won out. For example, the Allies, when I said they were arming the French resistance, they weren't arming the French communists at no time during this. So all of this meant that when the future of France would come to be written, the Gaul would be in the driving seat, you know? Yeah, so I mean... This pretty much, uh, I mean, that's that's a great summary of events. I, I assume, much like many other periods of history, there's so much intrigue and so many interesting things we could get into. But I suppose let's reconnect some of the things from the film now, if we may. I mean, when I'm talking about the types of situations you imagine from this time period, you imagine sort of the the scene in the basement bar where yeah. tensely they are sort of trying to figure out who's a, who's a spy and who isn't. They're having meetups with informants uh, in the film business and and all of this, and it's all about plotting the downfall of uh, the... Nobles and Hitler. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, yeah, I suppose I want to talk a little bit about... Um, well, firstly, let's say, spoiler alert for... Uh, inglorious bastards uh we generally we, we try to keep it general but i will mention now a spoiler for that so if you want to tune out go watch it and then come back but uh they do kill hitler in this film uh so <laughs> i i kind of appreciate that i i know some people might have a definitely have a problem with it because it's obviously not historically accurate but i almost see that as like them going you know, if you thought it was historically accurate up to this point, let us dissuade, let, like, let us banish that thought from your head because it <laughs> obviously isn't. And that sort of underlines this fantasy character of the story that we talked about, which I, so I kind of appreciate it. I don't know how you feel about it. Um, for me, um, like, I, I remember originally watching it. And I think I saw it. Yeah. So I, I, I saw it in cinema and I remember there being like reactions of people who come, people going, oh, <gasps> You know when, it, when because they don't just kill Hitler. Like, I mean, they blow him to pieces with a machine gun. Like, you know what I mean? Where he's like, you know, he basically looks like someone's dropped a jar of jam by the end of it. Um, but like at that point, I I was less shocked because I sort of knew this is a this yeah. is a sort of a Quentin Tarantino revenge fantasy kind of thing. Um, yeah. but yeah, like it does a it does a great job as you say of disavowing you of any, of any kind of idea that this is realistic i liked it i have to say i i, I thought it was i thought it was an interesting turn for it to take and um not out of line with the with with the with the mode although the cinema scene is inaccurate like there would have been the resistance would have engaged in like assassination of german and collaborators uh in the actual at that time so they would have tried to kill german military command they would have tried to that that all that all took place and often there was massive like reprisals afterwards like uh, one of the most famous reprisals ever at that time was in a lim in limoges in lim- the kind of central france in a little village called orador sur glan and basically the retreating germans and the milice which were like the 
the uh, Vichy French, essentially, mi- uh, mi- military police, they, uh, they locked like 600 men, women and children in a church and burnt them all to death. So like the war was getting so brutal at this time. So although the violence that we see in Quentin Tarantino's films, or particularly in this film, you know, obviously that didn't happen with the it within the cinema with with those characters all that. But this was an extremely violent time. Like people, like there was thousands killed. Like uh, they they they're not like just to give you an idea. Even in the Allied bombing of France, uh, something that's quite overlooked, sixty thousand French people died in the Allied bombing of France. So death was like you clicked your fingers. People were dying all around you. So he is in a way. Uh, Tarantino he is being accurate in showing that it was a violent time at the very least. Yeah, and I think if we're talking about the overall historical accuracy or inaccuracy, I think like as with a lot of Quentin Tarantino, what he's making is not a re- like he does he isn't making a remake of history, he's making like a pastiche of war films and other depictions of Nazis and stuff because yeah. Nazis have obviously become due to like all the way go going back all the way to like propaganda during the actual war to afterwards to you know captain america where nazis and hydra yeah. are the yeah. same thing uh, and like you know all, all the way up to today they are still the most cartoonishly evil villains we have b- because of the acts that they did which you know is fair enough but they're always painted in, in this and uh, well, obviously they're evil, so they're always painted in this way. But I mean, in something like Quentin Tarantino, he always, uh, you know, does references and homages and pulls from film history. And yeah. in this particular film, what he's pulling from is sort of war films and sort of making a. Spaghetti. I hate to say pastiche again, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's like there is a film called *Inglorious Bastards*, which is like a spaghetti war film. Uh, from i don't remember when exactly but uh that it, it has very little to do with with this film it's just sort of taken the name which is in itself sort of just a reference to that whole genre of war films that he's sort of uh, touching yeah. on here i think the music as well is it i cannot pronounce this man's name but like i think eight tracks of the soundtrack are any any maricone you know who who yeah. did the good Neil the Maracone, bad and the yeah. ugly yeah maricone yeah, yeah. uh so who, you know who did you know soundtracks for i don't know hundreds of films so a lot of this stuff you know it, it all rings true and even the sa- just touching on the soundtrack like david bowie putting out fire with gasoline what did <laughs> yeah. we all think of that like what a scene <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's very good. very effective it is very effective we're um, we're like we're we're at an hour already, but one thing we have to talk up about before we uh, finish up is about the "quote unquote" real Inglorious Bastards because there's pretty much nothing in this film that actually happened. Uh, mm. But it is worth like asking the question of like what is the equivalent here? And there was uh, a troop of mostly former Jewish, well, well, still Jewish, but uh, from. Uh, occupied uh, parts of Germany, Europe, Hungary, Poland. Yeah. Yes. So, so sort of Jewish people from there who had escaped and get gotten to uh, the UK. To my understanding, this troop referred to as X Troop, who uh, trained in the the Welsh mountains and then went in not to scalp Nazis, but mainly for recog- recognizance. Uh, they were in parts of. Uh, nazi-occupied france i don't know if you know any more about that uh mark like you say they're 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 recruits they are people of uh they're jews and and um 
expats from places like Hungary, Poland, Germany, France. I think there's a couple of Dutch guys in there. There's, there's certainly a couple of Scandinavians. I think one of them is Norwegian, in fact, um, who basically escape from their home countries uh, during the uh, Nazi invasions and occupations of their countries. And they, as you said, they make it to Britain and they're incorporated into the British uh, Special Service under the command, uh, under the commando units, rather. So they're they're commando ten. They're number Michael ten. Michael Fassbender. Unit, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're commando number ten, which is what X stands for. So X troop. They're not the military wing of the X Men, although that would be that's, that's <laughs> kind of a cool movie that maybe they should make. But um, <laughs> so they're basically like you say, they they train in the Welsh mountains and they take on names that would not quote unquote give them away as as. Jews, you know, so they obviously they they take on names that are that are more British sounding. So they change their names to like names like Hunter and Birchall and you know what I mean. These kind of Saxon sounding names, essentially. And what they do is they they go behind the lines and, like you say, they carry out reconnaissance and uh, they will have been in, in, involved in in some skirmishes and firefights. I, th- I think their losses, their casualties are about fifty percent. Um, there's eighty to ninety of them at any one time in a, in in this commando unit, um, and they are uh, fairly well known among among other commando units in the, in the, in the British military. But there's no scalping going on. They're not American, and they're certainly not led by a, a mountain man from Tennessee. Of Apache <laughs> descent, with a ludicrous accent, you know. Um, and they're not like uh, they're, they don't have names like the Bear Jew or anything like that. Like the, like um. Like that, that one guy in the, uh, the movie who's from, I think the character's supposed to be from Boston based on his accent. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's not really true. Or something, yeah. Donovitz. Donny yeah. Donowitz, isn't it? Donny Donowitz is the character's uh, name. Yeah. Because you know where he kills the guy with the bat? He starts referencing Fenway Park and he has a very effective Boston accent. Fenway Park is the, the Red Sox stadium, so I assume that's where he's supposed to be from. But the real bastards, X Troop, were a British military unit. Yeah, and one of them, uh, by the name of Masters, or who took the name of Masters, uh, I believe has written a memoir about it. Um, I I listened to a clip from uh, NPR where his daughter is sort of interviewed about the whole thing, talking about how, you know, there's these details we don't think about where, of course, after her father escaped Vienna and came to England, uh, once the war started, he was arrested for being, you know, uh, uh, an alien uh, from yeah. a country they're at from war with, state, even though yeah. he had to escape his enemy state in order not to be killed there, but he was arrested. Luckily, in this case, he could then volunteer to do sort of manual labor, which then led to they were looking for able-bodied men for you know dangerous mission, and then ended up in this uh, commando unit, which is a very interesting sort of path. And apparently, this memoir that he wrote was also sort of. Uh, originally, like being optioned by uh, the same film company that eventually made Inglorious Bastards, like they were wow. considering turning that into a film, and I think it says a lot about uh, I don't know our society and what sort of culture we enjoy that we actually uh, <laughs> that we actually ended up with Inglorious Bastards instead, um, <laughs> because this is a total fantasy, of course. Whereas I think yeah. the real story would probably have been quite interesting as well, you know. Mm. Um, and of course, he had to change his name. Uh, just as you were saying to to masters i don't remember what his original name was but of course his daughter who is also a writer now has still has that name um yeah. because they they took that on and they had to and much like in the film there was like they had to like 
explain away their accents with because mm-hmm. they were from various parts of Europe and they had to sort of explain why they because they were pretending to be British because obviously much better to be a British soldier if you're arrested you be yeah. put in a prisoner of war camp instead of a concentration yeah. camp so they mm-hmm. had to sort of practice their Welsh accents and <laughs> and uh, try to get away with it and, and luckily uh, he survived the war and, and like as you said about half of them came away without injury even though they participated in D-Day and reconnaissance mis- missions before that so it, it I'm like reality is almost always as fascinating and unbelievable as fiction um, but not quite in this case because it's Quentin Tarantino <laughs> <laughs> I always think it's interesting too the use of uh, the use of like you're saying, you're like, oh no, it's a Welsh accent because nobody yeah. on the continent will, you know what I mean, will know a Welsh yeah. accent. So they can kind of go, oh yeah, okay, yeah, so it's sort of Celtic and weird sort of language. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> There's loads and loads more to talk about, I'm sure, but we're kind of at time here. Are there any sort of closing remarks on Inglorious Bastards, the French Resistance, that we want to fit in? Uh, one thing I did want to say uh, was just you do see in the film how local french women are you know they are fraternizing with the germans you know Mm. and i i did think that that was portrayed very accurately because you could see that the women were most of the time were not happy that they had to do this you know but they had very little choice um and it's just it's a fact about this after the war um after the after the the germans were thrown out there was twenty thousand women french women were had their hair cropped so their all their hair shaved off and in some cases they were tarred and feathered and pushed through the streets in uh as shamed as being you know someone who had been with the germans as a as a and and i just when i read that i was just like wow it's not something you you ever hear much about you know uh but you could see almost this society pinning all of their own sort of guilt about the stuff that had happened over the last four years just picking women and saying oh put it all on them and shame them and have someone to blame and i i think that's something that uh researching this subject that's something that's going to stay with me a classic trope of catholicism there again let's blame the women (laughs) so i just have to get the final dig in there (laughs) (laughs) yeah we saw the same thing too uh just as bad of an extent in uh, Norway, I think, where women were sexually assaulted for the purpose of making babies who were Aryan because they considered, you know, the Norwegians Norwegians, to have good genes. Um, So there were a lot of children then who had to live with this weird stigma and not have, like, literally not have the same rights as other people in Norway because there's so much hate and shame tied up with all of this. And it's this sort of thing that really comes into contrast when you're watching, as you say, a revenge fantasy, which is what Quentin Tarantino does. Like, almost all of his films have some aspect of being a revenge fantasy. Um, And it's, like, satisfying, but I feel like it's like definitely a guilty pleasure because it's oversimplifies everything and, like, Mm -hmm. it's... but at the same time connects with parts of film history that are quite fun and interesting and is almost like a horror, like over-the-top splatter films that we all kind of enjoy. But when it's connected to real-world events like Inglorious Bastards, it just becomes a bit more of a problem than, you know, some of his other films with Assassins and Kill Bill or whatever. Um, but yeah, so any sources we want to point people to uh, if they do want to do more reading on this? Any recommendations? Uh, yeah, I have a couple there anyway to go through, so... If you really want a load of detail on 
you know, the various groups that sprung up all over France and all their petty rivalries and the day-to-day kind of resistance activities they carried out, everything from bombing a factory to, uh, you know, uh, doing things like uh, sabotaging uh, the ticket office at the train station, uh, you know, ridiculous levels of stuff that people got up to. There's a book called Fighters in the Shadows by Robert Gilday, and that's something I drew heavily on this. And then if you want kind of an, a light overview of, I suppose, De Gaulle, uh, the French resistance, and then the future of France post, uh, post-war, then you can go with the history of modern France, and that's by Jonathan um, Fenby. Great, thank you. Uh, I don't know if, Mark, you want to uh, recommend any relevant books on the French? Yeah, there's a, there's numerous, numerous books. I, I will go uh, maybe The Battle for France, Philip Warner, Six Weeks to Change the World. Um, that's reasonably recent. I struggle to tell you what year it is it came out in, but probably within the last 10 or 15 years. Um, that's a pretty good overview. It goes into a bit of detail about what I was what I was talking about, the, uh, the Blitzkrieg and all of that kind of crack. Great, thank you. Um, so that pretty much wraps up our coverage of Inglorious Bastards. Please do send us your thoughts to shows what you know show at gmail.com if you have any opinion on the film itself or the history that's connected. Uh, we also very much appreciate reviews. Um, you could include any of your questions or thoughts there and we'll we'll bring them up. Um I, I also wanted to point out that this is episode five of season two of Real History, if you're keeping count, which means we're halfway through the season now. Congratulations, everyone. We made it this far. Um, <laughs> and we've covered five different films. Now, I think anyone who knows uh, Mark or Michael outside of the podcast will have asked over the period of time of season one and two, where's all the Roman history? Because you guys are massively into Roman history. In fact, Michael, you've uh, been uh, called Cicero at times. And we, we all have these old nicknames and such related to this. But it's not since Gladiator, I think, that we've actually gotten into it which is episode two of season one unless i'm mistaken um so i i'm here to announce that the next four episodes of real history will be about the hbo show rome which uh goes into pretty much the the pivotal part of rome parts of of uh roman history as the republic becomes uh an empire and sort of the years following that um so it's great because show. it's such great a yeah, it's a fantastic show. I, I wanted to mention it ahead of time because even though you don't need to have watched it, I think not enough people have watched the HBO show Rome. Mm-hmm. As yeah. we'll get into in the next few episodes, it is like it is kind of a precursor to Game of Thrones. And I know we all hate Game of Thrones now, but like if you want to see <laughs> HBO big budget historical shit, um, then the HBO show Rome is is comes highly recommended by all of us, and uh, it'll be a great jumping off point as well. Because as I said, we're going to talk about it for four episodes. Now that sounds like a lot, but in the first one, we'll be getting into sort of the introduction that actually talks about Roman history leading up to the start of the show, and then in the second one, we're talking about season one. And then we're talking about uh, season two, because there's only two seasons, and then sort of the aftermath of that. So there's quite a lot, and you will be getting a a masterclass in Roman history over the course of the next four episodes. Uh, I wanted to mention that now, because we haven't done a TV show uh, before at all. Um, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. (laughs) 
Yeah, so uh, we'll be very interested in your feedback and thoughts on that. After these four episodes, we're going to have a sort of season finale, more of a casual sort of discussion just to wrap up the season. Um, So if you do have any questions for us uh, on... Uh, well, on, on any topic related to the production of the show or history or in general, you can send those to shows which you know show at gmail.com and we'll sort of bring them up there in the season finale. But that'll be just sort of a, a chat to wrap up the season. So because it's all settled, what we're talking about for the rest of the season, also send us recommendations for what you want to hear in season three, which, yes, is probably on the horizon there already in the works behind the scenes but that's pretty much it for announcements again reviews very much appreciated thank you all for listening to our inglorious bastards coverage any other closing thoughts guys (laughs) vive la resistance (laughs) viva la resistance and that's the end of the reel (laughs) 